0: Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360, Specialty Network. According to the most recent data available from the CDC, an estimated 1.2 million people in the United States had HIV at the end of 2018. Of those people, about one in seven did not know they had HIV. Dr. Jonathan Colasanti is here to speak with us about where our current care models are failing and what we might need to do to improve health outcomes for patients with HIV. Dr. Colasanti is the Medical Director of the Infectious Disease Program at the Grady Health System in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also an Associate Professor of Medicine in Infectious Disease and at the School of Public Health in the Department of Global Health at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Colasanti. You're presenting your session, HIV Care Delivery in 2021 at ACT-HIV 2021. Can you please give us an overview of your session?
1: Yeah, sure. With this session, really my, my objective is, is to make us think a bit outside the box and, and push the envelope on where we're kind of willing to go as a system with our, our care delivery. And I'll talk a little bit about differentiated care and how that contrasts a bit with different models of care and in giving, in giving patients options I think what what you'll find is that kind of throughout it, many of the models of care, what's inherent to them is integration, multidisciplinary warmth and compassion and cultural humility and really leading with that. And I you know, I, I talk a little bit about how COVID has affected care delivery and where it may get us in the future, especially with regard to, to telehealth as we learned a lot about that this year. But there are also, I think some specific sessions around COVID and HIV at the Act HIV conference. So I took this as an opportunity to really try to dive into where our current care models are failing and what we might need to do to, to really take care of, you know, what's often referred to in the field of HIV is kind of the last 10%. And that comes from the UNAIDS targets of 90, 90, 90, or 95, 95, 95. In other words, about, you know, 10% of the population globally is not, or or even with the kind of the, the targets there may not be perfectly cared for. And how do we care for that population? Uh, In the United States, actually, when we think about our HIV care continuum, which I do go into a little bit, our gaps are slightly different than where they are globally. And so that end number in terms of total number of, of individuals in our country that are living with HIV that are in care and virologically suppressed hovers around the the 50% mark. So we really have a long way to go. And so I try to explore where we might improve, improve those outcomes.
0: Yeah, Well, let's explore that. Can you dive a little bit deeper? Where are we today on HIV
1: care? Sure. It's funny. We have a, we have a great model for HIV care in this country with the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, which has been around for decades as kind of a pair of last resort for persons with HIV yet despite the fact that this is for pair you know a pair of last resort they've taken the model of a of a comprehensive medical home as what they try to do in the Ryan White program and that's what so many of the the Ryan White programs do so well. And and their numbers of, for patients that are engaged in care are really great for viral suppression, like 88%. And, and so it's kind of, you have to pause and say, well, why do we actually need to reevaluate this model? And again, it comes down to that small group of individuals that even with all that, with all that the Ryan White program currently offers, we're still failing them. Our our system is still failing the patient. And and when you look at disparities and outcomes with HIV and look at deaths, first and foremost, there's a a tremendous disparity between uh, people of color, in particular African-American and Black populations, compared to other populations with upwards of eight times uh, as greater risk of death, really no matter what region of the country, but that's especially magnified in the the U.S. Southern context.
0: Well, that's going right into my next question. You mentioned touching on where current care models are failing. Where are the gaps and disparities that exist today in HIV care?
1: Yeah, the the models that are, again, the, the, the disparities, you see them across all of our spectrum of our HIV care continuum, from diagnosis to linkage to care to retention and viral suppression. And ultimately that death number is, is what bothers me the most. Cause I think that proves how uh, profoundly we do fail our patients at times. But again, you can look at any stage of the care continuum and we can see gaps and you can see disparities, whether that be among people of color or our youth or our transgender populations oftentimes have, or, or, or folks that have mental illness or substance use comorbidities or, or gaps in social services, such as housing and food, all those individuals, tend to do worse along the care continuum. And so we have to find models of care that address each of those. And that can often do it, whether it's simultaneously or nimble enough to, to go between different models of care and get patients to the model of care that's going to fit with them as their dynamic life also changes.
0: How do we get HIV care to people who need it despite our limited
1: resources? I think, it, I mean, first and foremost, we have to build our workforce. So we have, you know, we have limited resources in terms of dollars, but we also have really limited resources in terms of the workforce to care for this population, which is magnified in the the Southern context, which I, which I talk about a little bit more in detail in the talk. And so we have to improve that. There's a new bill in Congress that Senator John Lewis, the late Senator John Lewis had actually put forth before his passing. I believe it's called the HEAL Act, which would pay for student loans for a lot of the different professions that would care for people living with HIV, if they kind of practice in an under-resourced setting. So that hopefully will encourage a stronger, a stronger workforce. But then working with the current resources we we have, I think we have to kind of use those resources a little bit more smartly and, and a little bit more efficiently. And that's where you look to kind of a differentiated care model out of, out of the PEPFAR programs in Africa, which They started by thinking we have 35 million people in this world that need HIV medications, yet we don't have the health systems to get them those, um, the way those health systems kind of currently operated. So how do we do that? And they had to make aspects of the health system more efficient. Um, So that might mean actually less medical care, but easier access to things like medications and and closer to the community closer to people's homes to get medications without always kind of going to the doctor visit and so that's how they've used that to kind of scale up which may be right for a proportion of our patients yet some of the restraints of our current kind of guidelines and metrics for programs and the way patients have to be monitored can put a, a hindrance on that and and also we have you know a lot of patients who have very complex medical comorbidities very complex lives and may need a a lot more than just, you know, that fast track type of HIV care, where they can come in quickly for meds, get their meds, get some labs and leave other people need really, really intensive visits. And, and so that's where I, I get into a little bit more of, so beyond just this differentiated care and having kind of fast tracks and easier places to get meds, how do we also have truly different models? that become patient-centered and programs can give to patients based on both patient preference and patient needs. And when I talk about different models of care in the context of this talk, we talk a little bit about kind of pop-up or open access clinics for some of our highest needs populations who tend to cycle in and out of care, have lots of oftentimes um, social support gaps, again, whether that be with housing or transportation um, or, or just kind of family support um, or comorbid substance use and, and mental health illnesses that also need to be addressed. And so for, or just someone that has a chaotic life, someone that's hard to keep up with a schedule. When is my doctor's appointment? This kind of allows patients to come in on their own when, when is right for them. And often these types of models, there's one in San Francisco that I talk about one in Seattle, and briefly a model that we had here in Atlanta for a little while. And all of these models offer some sort of other support. So there's often case management embedded, a a direct contact to to someone in the clinic, whether that be a navigator or a clinician. So patients don't have to deal with our kind of cumbersome health systems as they are at this point, even in just trying to get through and get an appointment. And the clinic out in Seattle and San Francisco, they even give financial incentives to kind of meet certain benchmarks, whether that be to to get labs or or to achieve some of the the laboratory benchmarks that we go after, like viral suppression, um, and then finally really filling those other gaps that the patients have, whether that be a meal while they're there, or intensive social work support to get housing, or kind of embedded within that a mental health provider or uh, or substance use care, so that that can all be done with sort of one stop shopping as convenient as can be for patients. And then more broadly, we talk a lot about just the overarching need for true integration of both mental health care and and substance use care in order to, I think, achieve optimal outcomes for our patients.
0: Well, you just mentioned there are some elements that lead to success, but what are the different care delivery models that really have shown success. We mentioned some that are failing, but talk to us about the success.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the great thing, and I think in the field of, of HIV in particular, and thinking about care delivery and retention, how do we keep patients engaged in care? You know, the CDC has a great website. It's called a linkage and retention compendium that has kind of all the interventions that have been done over the years, summarized that have shown some benefit with retention or viral suppression or linkage to care. And we have a lot of those that give us a little bit of benefit. We don't have any magic bullet, but a lot of those focus on either the patient or kind of the health system and how we can make the system a little bit easier for the patient, often with some sort of either like patient navigation, so using another human resource to help that person through the system or technology-based with mobile health type platforms to give the patients another platform to either communicate with the health provider or get education or have support groups. So a lot has been focused on that, but where we see a gap is often in, in actually looking at the structure of the clinic and the care team itself, as well as the interaction with the provider and the, the people within the clinic and that experience, and what's the impact of changing that on patient outcomes. And we have fewer data, but they're beginning, beginning to see some at least on the fact that this is a real problem. We we haven't seen data yet to show us what the solution is, other than the common sense solution, which is proved customer service and really making the patient the center of the care model.
0: Right. Well, talk- to us about the customer service aspect of care for patients and how it really affects the patient's care overall.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we hear this all the time from patients. We know that that stigma, whether external or internalized stigma and stigma that can be perpetuated by bad experiences within the healthcare system, that it drives patients away from care, right? This is the one place when you're living with a stigmatized disease that patients should be able to come with zero fears and knowing that they're going to be treated well. And and also that it's just convenient and for patients, right? I mean, I'm a patient in the, in the health system in 2021 um, with another chronic disease, and it's really, really challenging to navigate. Every time I have to do it, I think about patients that don't have the means and the resources I do. And I, I think to myself, if I had a bad experience, if someone was a jerk to me, I could very easily see how it's, it's easy to turn the other way. And so Elvin Gang has done a lot of great work in sub-Saharan Africa around this. and, And I talk about this study in my talk where they looked at patients, they actually found patients who were out of care and they asked them, why were they out of care? And, and most of them said they fell out of care because something happened, life happened, something structural happened, a transportation issue, work got in the way kind of thing, or a family issue came up. Sometimes it was, you know, something internal to them. They just didn't really care anymore, or they were feeling depressed. But, but then when they flipped the question around to the patients, same patients, same patients that had said, Why'd you fall out of care? And asked, what would it take for you to get to go back? All of a sudden the focus shifted to the clinic. And it was the wait times have to be less. I can't be treated poorly. Things like that. And and to me, that was really eye-opening to see that there's all kinds of reasons, right? We put our healthcare on the back burner. I think we all learned this probably in 2020 with our own healthcare, right? Like let's ask ourselves when the last time we got our 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 every six month dental cleanings were. And I, I imagine most of us missed those over the last year. But if you're already having a bad experience, to then pull yourself up, so to speak, by the bootstraps and go back into care is next to impossible. If you're having a really good experience, right, common sense will tell you that will bring you back. So I I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that and how we can improve that to, to, to get patients back into care when they inevitably will fall out because of a life experience. And then more recently, they, these data are actually unpublished, but I, I got permission from the author's um, or the the group that's doing the research to, to show some of their initial results. This is a group out of Houston, Dr. Bick Dang and her group. And they showed that the initial experience between the patient and their clinician at the clinic, the very first time the patient came to clinic, did seem to have an impact on whether they were retained in care at six months or a year. And the great thing about that, and it's what we struggle with in terms of how to deploy the the, inter, the the interventions that we do have that are effective. Oftentimes the question is when and where and how do we actually get these to the patient at the right time? Well, this new kind of look at that patient provider experience and a separation between those that had a perfect experience and those that had less than a perfect experience gives you kind of an opportunity to, to check in with patients immediately after that first visit. And if it wasn't good, Maybe we need to swoop in and those are the patients that we need to put these other systems and on other care models that I do talk about in the talk around those patients, or maybe just talk to them about getting a different provider um, or a different clinician if that didn't mesh. I think we feel, you know, in in lots of ways, healthcare is becoming more of a convenience and, and lots of patients in all walks of healthcare kind of just want a quick in and out. And I do think that's true for some persons living with HIV, but what we hear time and time again from our patients is that they want a relationship. They want people to care. Take a look at the study from UCSF that I presented in this talk, when they asked patients about if, and and this was from a, from a care model where they were paying patients to do some of these things that we want patients to do in terms of coming back in labs. And they said, if you were to give up some of that money, what would you give it up for? And they would give up the most amount of money for a good relationship with their care provider more than they would give up for kind of easy access to the clinic or, or transportation or things like that. They want that, that relationship, they want someone to care about them. And, and I think that is going to be what ultimately becomes what gets us over the last hurdle uh, to, to really provide optimal care to those that unfortunately our system has labeled as challenging to retain and care or, or challenging to keep in care. And I think it's more just that we're missing the mark and, and our systems are failing to keep them in care rather than it being something that the patient is doing wrong.
0: I don't think that we can talk about HIV care delivery in 2021 without mentioning the COVID-19 global pandemic. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected care?
1: Sure. And, and there's I think there's lots of talks in, in the ACT-HIV 2021 about COVID and HIV. So I think a lot of this will get covered. But in terms of true care delivery and, and where it affected us, right, it affected us a lot, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, in terms of patients just physically being able to get to the clinic, whether it was for fear or for guidance from their own healthcare professionals to say, we want you to stay home. And so we learned how to use telehealth to some capacity, which had not been used broadly in HIV care. There is some existing evidence to show that telehealth can improve viral suppression in certain populations. And I think what COVID did is it forced almost every health system to go ahead and implement it. Even though we had been talking about it for years, it just kind of forced the hand of of health systems to do it. So now we have that tool. I still think we're figuring out how to optimize it. You know, anecdotally, at least in our clinic, we found that both patients and providers have largely kind of abandon it as the pandemic has gone on and we've found safer ways to provide care. And it's almost as if the provider and the patient both prefer the inpatient care across the board, though we do provide ongoing telemedicine now to a much greater capacity than we ever did in the past. So there's clearly uh, an avenue for it. And I think it's up to us now to figure out exactly where and when to, to use that type of service. We saw lots of gaps in HIV testing, actually, I think that was probably one of the most profound impacts of the COVID epidemic on HIV, and a lot of missed opportunities because the focus all became on testing for COVID. When in fact, acute HIV um, or late stage HIV can often present like COVID, and and so there was a study that I don't talk about in this particular talk, but out of Chicago, looking at HIV testing in emergency rooms, and showing how they. They actually picked up, they kept all their HIV testing exactly where it had been pre-pandemic and they picked up a lot of new HIV infections that other health systems in the area were missing. And so I think that's certainly a lesson to continue our opt-out HIV testing programs and really scale those up and think about models that actually integrate testing for multiple entities, whether, you know, like COVID and HIV all at the same time, rather than again, setting up these siloed systems where we just focus on one. Uh, disease process. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, touch on that we missed? I think we covered most. I- I'll say just because I mentioned it briefly in the talk, and it's such a hot topic right now. And in HIV care is the long-acting antiretroviral therapy, the injectable therapy that is now approved, and clinics are trying to figure out how to implement. There's some other talks around it at the conference, so I think they'll delve into it more than I had a chance to. But it's it's a new therapy that we're going to have to figure out how it fits in to that differentiated care or different care model approach that I talk about kind of towards the beginning of the session. And it's important that we figure out how that fits into some of this differentiated care or different care models that patients may have and right this type of care is actually going to require more intense health system interaction than our usual care in a way because patients have to come in at this point monthly for injections whereas many patients may just be touching our health system once every 6 months for a visit and otherwise getting medications mailed to them um, or picking them up at a local pharmacy so this requires more intense health system resources so we just have to figure out where it fits into that menu of care and really make sure that we put resources behind it that match the intensity that this type of therapy really requires to keep people on and engaged in care long-term that may in fact be more so than our current therapies. But ultimately, I think I would finish by just saying we have more options now than ever before for HIV care. Yet oftentimes when a patient walks into care, they still get the carte blanche, you know, this is the, the, the care you get. And then they only get other options if they fail that initial care model where I think what we should be thinking about is at the front end, can we offer different care models that a patient can choose from one that fits them and one that, you know, someone with, with a, with a health background and and some understanding of the issues that that patient is facing can advise which model may fit best for them. But I think that's where we're moving kind of a choose your own adventure type of care. So we can actually make care patient centered. We do a lot in, in programs such as Ryan White programs to, to make the care patient centered and, and to, to provide compassionate care um, and to make it more convenient where we can. But, but I think we often lack the options that, that patients may want for, for various types of, of convenience throughout their care journey.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Colasanti. We really appreciate it. I can tell you're really passionate about compassionate care for patients and we really appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Sure. No, absolutely.